welcome to all of our virtual attendees. I am Suzanne Wilson-Heckenberg, President of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance and the Intelligence and National Security Foundation. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of our Future of the IC Workforce videocast series, underwritten by Advantis Federal and co-produced by Clearance Jobs. This series examines how we can reimagine the traditional IC work model and use lessons learned from the pandemic to build and grow a diverse and talented IC workforce. Our first episode featured NSA Executive Director Harry Coker Jr. and Advantis Federal CEO Andy Maynard. They discussed the challenges and opportunities that remote workforce trends afford. Today, we will focus on adapting the workforce, recruiting, retaining, training, and reskilling. Here to discuss these issues are Trey Treadwell, Assistant Director of National Intelligence, IC Chief Financial Officer, and Ken Moy, Acting Assistant Secretary of State, Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our program moderator, Lindy Kaiser. Lindy is the Senior Editor of ClearanceJobs.com, the largest website for cleared professionals. As Senior Editor, Lindy covers the defense industry, IC, government, and contracting trends for the Clearance Jobs news site newsletter and media partners. Over to you, Lindy. Thank you so much, Suzanne. And thank you to Trey and to Ken for joining this conversation. I am so excited. I think we have a really great conversation today. We have the budget folks, we have INR, which I was rereading an article that we wrote about INR on our website. And we referred to you as the 300 of the intelligence community. So um, be ready to to dine in hell while preparing your multi-page reports, right? So you are you are a small but mighty agency within the intelligence community. So thank you, Ken. And then Trey, your your background, the military background, the private sector background, and then your great government expertise. Thank you. Bring a lot to the conversation. I'm really excited to talk about the retraining, the reskilling, retention, and how we're moving forward. Because what we've seen now is this new kind of virtual remote work environment is really where this is headed, at least having some hybrid opportunities. We're not going to go back, at least in, in every capacity, to the way things were. And so we have a great chance to say, like, how have we adapted so far? What have the challenges been? And what have the opportunities been? So I wanted to start and have my first um, question head over to you, Ken, to talk about the return to work. So we're starting to see the return to work. Um, we're seeing it kind of phase in, you know, especially in the intelligence community where there is a lot of work that does have to be done in an office. Folks are going back, but we're seeing new policies in place, even for those who are returning to work. So explain a little bit more about this, kind of what safety, security, how are you, how are you making the return to work safe for your employees that are going back at INR? Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Lindy, and, and thanks for inviting me. It's really a great opportunity to talk about uh, you know, what we're trying to do uh, in INR to help uh, our workforce adapt to a, a new normal, really. And we are trying to transition back. We can see with the vaccine that there is light at the end of the tunnel. We also know um, that our workforce, because of the last 13, 14 months, they have different expectations of us too. And as managers, I think that we have to take into consideration the things that we've learned over the last year that has created a kind of new, uh, of new reality where um, people are uh, or have been quite productive outside. 
And we all know that it's no longer just about presence. It's about productivity and making sure that we're, um, that we're doing the requirements, but also making sure uh, that we're being uh, safe as well. So I think that even in a post-vaccine environment for us in our intelligence element, we are going to make sure that we have um, very strict guidance about um, uh, physical or social distancing. We are going to make sure that masks are worn in the workplace as well. And we're also going to make sure that in some of our more uh, enclosed spaces, in some of our tighter spaces, that we um, enforce some of the rules about um, limiting numbers of uh, colleagues who can be in spaces just to give people an extra sense of security. Because we have to remember, we have some employees that have been uh, in the office seldom uh, in the last year. Some have not even been in uh, an office kind of presence um, environment in, in the last 13 or 14 months. So giving them some confidence, building some trust back into um, our workforce is really a priority for us. And that's what we're going to uh, undertake over the next uh, you know, few months as we transition back into the uh, office. Awesome. And then over to you, Trey. So for a long time, we had a mindset in the IC that remote work just couldn't be done. It just wasn't an option. And then when we didn't have any other option, we saw that a lot of you know things were put in place. So certain people whether it was shift work situations, whether it was um, you know rotating kind of assignments, we just saw a lot of changes. What changes had to be put in place, either policy or even resource-wise, to make make sure that functions still happened um, with with the pandemic? And and what do you kind of see continuing maybe in that environment? Do you think we'll see more flexible schedules, shift schedules? Will some of that continue? Or are you already seeing a push for that within some of your organizations? Absolutely, and and. Thank you, Lindy, for uh, moderating this and ENSA for hosting and the foundation. Uh, I always enjoy trying to be a, an active participant and because of so much that everybody does for the community and, and collaboration. So first of all, I want to say thank you all for that. Um, on that front, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And so when, when we first got sent home and we first, we were like, what are we going to do? We can't operate without people here. We can't do secure work out of, outside of a skiff. Uh, it was... What do we do? We're, we're all using Gmail. Not everybody had government-issued phones to do even FOU on, uh, FOUO uh, communications through. And so we started to adapt with some policy changes and some waivers up front. Then we started creating more of a web access environment for just communicating and reading communications. Um, I came out to my car to do Teams calls or uh, Zoom calls or WebEx meetings, just depending upon what what was available to folks so we could at least keep our, our people um, in touch and communicate with them on what was going on. And really, we, we started identifying, you know, what was it that we could do uh, that was unclassified work? And in my office specifically, we're going through a revamping of how we actually build the budget and, and create uh, opportunities for how we redirect resources across the community. Well, you can do a lot of business process reengineering without having to be in a skiff. We could have people working from home on that. They can create documents that aren't even FOUO. They're just mapping things out. And what we started to see was that was occurring throughout the organization. So the combination of uh, shift work from morning to one o'clock or two o'clock in the after 
afternoon that was like a six hour shift versus an eight hour shift, uh, a little bit of a spread. So folks could come in and off hours, we could have less than 50% in the building at any one point in time. Um, what work we had, like I said, we started identifying what could be done outside of that secure environment. And it was, it was surprising to not just myself, but to many others, um, the amount of work that we could do that was in the unclassified domain and then, and then migrated and transported up. And so, um, you know, we really started to just push on to the teams that like, what do you think you can do? What else is out there? What policies, what technologies do you need? Do you need to have truly a login to a, to a virtual environment that we can work on, even if it's on class? Uh, can you work on your home computers? What policies need to be changed? And so uh, we were able to do a lot of that and adapt uh, somewhat in real time. And now as, as we've been in this condition for over a year, um, you know, as Ken mentioned, as, as we do start to come back, uh, we're still trying to identify those opportunities to give the flexibility of uh, parents or caretakers of, of either uh, older parents themselves that, you know, they need a certain amount of time each week to take care of them because they don't have, whether it's child care or elder care available to them, um, they give them a, enough amount of time to be able to work with, work through getting that because it's just not available. And, uh, and then, as they come back to work, leveraging, you know, what they can do specifically at the office versus remotely. And um, it is it is surprising how much we are able to begin to work that way. Um, I th there's still a significant amount of work that has to be done in a secure environment. So I don't think we're going to get completely away of that out of that until, uh, you know, we all have skips at home. And that's just a, a cost burden that. Uh, TBD on, on how we get to that point in time sometime in the future. I know I'm not resourced for that right now. <laughs> I got an email about this this week. Some guy was like, can I just build a skiff? I found some plans online. Like, can I just put that in my garage? It's like, I don't, that's like, get to talk to your supervisor. I don't know. I don't want to tell you to spend that money. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you can start putting in your brief, briefcase and taking it home. But it has started talking about innovations like skiff sharing. So private sector, you know, government working together. And Trey, you did a great job of teeing us up for the next question I have for Ken about the retention within the intelligence community has been a big piece here. How do we make those primary caregivers, give them the flexibility that they need and still continue to need even as we phase back into work? So have you seen any retention issues since the pandemic hit or what kind of things have you put in place to keep both men and women caregivers in the workforce? Well, we're quite a small outfit, as you know. We have about 330 uh, team members. And um, as far as we know, and we do uh, track this very carefully, uh, we are aware of only one uh, team member uh, who has left uh, INR in the last year because of the pandemic. So I think the record is very strong. But I don't think that that means that many, many uh, people or many of our colleagues in our workforce haven't really thought very carefully about their futures, um, whether they are comfortable coming back to the office, whether their family situation allows for them to come back. I mean, these um, are issues that you know our employees are discussing privately in their homes, but we also want to make clear to, to them that um, our managers, our office directors, leadership uh, wants to have that conversation with them too. I strongly recommend uh, something that we've done in INR um, to, um, to really uh, monitor the, the spirits of our team members. And that is 
um, to survey, to send out questionnaires about how we're doing as leadership and how people are feeling out there. And that will give us a better idea of how uh, we might be able to adapt down the road, again, given um, the changing environment uh, in the workforce. Um, Trey had mentioned, uh, you know, using our imagination, uh, trying to think about cr creative ways uh, to do our work. One thing that we did in INR is we adapted a product um, that we now do um, on a regular basis that is unclassified. And so what we do is we use open source materials and combine that with one of uh, INR's great strengths, and that's our expertise, our experience and expertise. And so that blend is it really works well for us because we can produce these unclassified um, products. And as I understand, uh, a number of them have made it all the way to the White House. And so that kind of workplace flexibility where some people can see themselves doing certain kinds of work at home. Uh, Trey's absolutely right. Um, there are, there's a large percentage uh, of our workforce that will have to come in at sometimes because of our requirements and because of the systems that we work on. But that doesn't stop us from really thinking about um, these new kinds of products, a new way of working that could allow people to spend some time away. Uh, we've also been imaginative in um, looking at or reimagining our, our schedules. And so uh, for us, that means that we're going to stagger our hours. Sometimes people will come in a little bit later on during the day, especially if they're sharing um, caregiving with some other member of the household. Somebody can do morning hours and somebody can maybe come in later hours. We've also uh, allowed our employees to come in on weekends. Um, that is uh, an expensive option. Um, I will grant you that because you have to make sure that when people are coming in on the weekends, you have people who are able to open up doors, also that the heating and air conditioning is working so they feel comfortable. But that is something that has really, I think, um, kept the morale uh, very stable um, in our agency just because they know that we are thinking, we are going the extra mile in thinking about these flexibilities that will help them do their work. I love it. He just said the word expensive with the budget guy on the line. It just shows the transparency within the intelligence communities on display here. As well as I also note, you both kind of talked about how the, the workplace flexibilities, we have that on display because we have home, we have car, we have office. You can work from anywhere. Look at that. Look at it right here. So he again kind of teed you up here. I love how we have this banter going. So Trey, like talk to me a little bit about how what was maybe made possible in terms of shifting those resources? So maybe you had offices that had previously always been closed on a weekend. Did that require any kind of budget moving or has that maybe shifted your priorities budget wise or resource allocation wise into the future saying even for the next year or two years, how are we going to, how are we shifting resources to make sure these accommodations can continue? Well, certainly at the at the very top level, you know, and I, I can speak to the IC's budget at, at a very macro level, roughly $63 billion uh, in, in the previous requests were enacted and, and um, talk to the the sort of costs that Ken is, is referencing in the grand scheme of things aren't really all that expensive. They're just, they're, they are costs that were incurred that weren't really expected and, and anticipated. And it does, it is an additional cost, but it's also the people. You know, one of the things that uh, we looked at how we were addressing the, the workforce in terms of shifting time and hours 
um, as well as accommodations. There were HVAC system upgrades that needed to occur. There were uh, cubicle spaces that needed uh, to be um, sort of modified so that we could still use those or you could only use half of them at a time. Uh, we put up a lot of plexiglass in places where people were sort of had to interface face to face. Um, we have recently installed uh, sort of a, a temperature monitoring IR system here for screening incoming people similar to what uh, you might see at airports or other places. So all, a lot of those costs, um, we were consistently uh, engaged uh, with what are the things we need to do to keep people safe? Because in the grand scheme of things, we can replace buildings, we can replace satellites, we can replace other sorts of tangible assets. Uh, but the people of the IC really are the, the most critical element to, to making it succeed. And so we had to figure out ways to make them feel safe and comfortable so that they weren't worried about uh, coming into the office. And, you know, even if it was a bit of an expense over a short period of time, those single one-time investments and continuing to evolve and adjust uh, on what the environment was like and how to keep it safe um, – uh, was was something that we knew that we had to do, whether it was government or the contractors. Um, and you know, I'm I hope I'm not skipping too far ahead and, and teeing things up. But just like uh, the government workforce working with our contractor teammates, uh, the 3610 CARES Act stuff that we were able to put in place um, early on in this to be able to account for caring for the contractor workforce, similar to how we were with government with the, the weather and safety leave to be able to make sure we didn't have to reconstitute a workforce that wasn't able to be reconstituted quickly. I mean, that was an investment in the people of the IC, government contractor, the entire workforce of the IC. So um, work sharing spaces, uh, you know, the, the building is somewhat at a, at a significant uh, down when you're you're shifting work like that, so it gives people those that sort of comfort that they're not being infringed upon. Their personal space isn't there. Um, there were uh, a lot of things put in place, such as hand wash towels. The masks were given out; they're always available. Um, more frequent cleaning. So, all of these are just really marginal costs in the grand scheme of things at the at the cost of losing that most valuable asset of our people. And hopefully that sort of commitment to that and the consistency there is the objective of retaining that workforce. Um, and whether they're, you know, they move back and forth across companies, they move back in, back and forth in and out of the government, people are, do love the mission that we perform. And so how do we keep them engaged in that? And uh, I think it was really key that we were able to demonstrate that through uh, a, a number of initiatives that we've talked to already today. Yeah, no, that retention piece is, is huge because, again, the cost to, you know, retrain to bring somebody else on board once you lose them. That's why if you're able to right. the weekend openings and things like that makes makes a big difference. And it sounds like it's really been a success story so far within the intelligence community that you have been able to keep people engaged and excited. Uh, kind of on that note as well. So 2020 was definitely the year of the virtual conference and virtual event. Um, and that was an encouraging thing to see that training didn't necessarily stop. For a lot of agencies, I've heard, you know, DOD saying they've actually, their training numbers have never been higher because it's one of those tasks that they can give employees to do in a remote environment. So Ken, I wanted to speak to that a little bit. Um, how have you maybe, you know, seen the need to train employees in new ways? How, how have you been able to retrain or reskill? Because there are some aspects of that in the intelligence community. I mean, it, there are sensitive matters that you even need to train and skill on. So it's not all as easy as like sending somebody to a virtual event. 
Um, how has your training mission moved forward in this virtual environment? Yeah, I mean, there are some aspects of um, the tradecraft training, uh, especially when it's of a sensitive nature. Um, there really isn't a way to do it uh, except in, in person. But so many other aspects of our training, we've been able to really adapt pretty well uh, using the technology. Now, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be able to replicate what we had before uh, when we did all in-person training. But as I understand, um, just because I think we're, we're, we're looking at a, a pretty motivated um, workforce when it comes to training, uh, there has been a, a lot of adaptation. Um, you know, at the very beginning, it was awkward. There's, there's no doubt, especially with trainers who maybe weren't as accustomed to doing it in this kind of style where you have to recognize that people learn differently when they're online. Uh, but also um, students, um, trainees uh, who weren't necessarily uh, accustomed uh, to, to using uh, sort of online uh, media. Um, but as I understand, there are certain types of trainings that uh, have worked very effectively uh, at our Foreign Service Institute, for example. Uh, we have seen no degradation in the, um, the learning levels of our language students. They're actually passing their uh, language exams or learning up to proficiency levels at about the same kinds of rates uh, as pre-pandemic. So here's an example of where uh, instructors um, are using different kinds of techniques, uh, maybe adapting um, their, their methods a little bit, their training methods. Um, and with adequate preparation um, that they put into um, these courses, um, some of the, the students are actually um, learning just as they had uh, before. Um, but um, there, there really is no substitute for that in-person kind of training. And as we all know, that you know, when we are doing training at a site, when we have taken a full day or maybe a full week to go to a location, um, there are certain aspects of that training that you get uh, that can't be replicated, such as networking. A great part of, of going to a course is meeting colleagues, perhaps from other agencies, um, exchanging ideas with them. Maybe it's somebody who does the same line of work you do. Maybe it's somebody who's at the same point of his or her career uh, that you are in right now. And so that kind of exchange, that, that very kind of human or in-person kind of exchange of you know, ideas, thoughts, that's something that isn't easily replicated in, in online settings. And so we're still learning how to do that. I do know that, um, you know, I was on uh, an offsite um, uh, recently where we were able to go into kind of breakout sessions. And so they were trying to replicate um, a networking environment or an environment where you could, you um, uh, partner with others and develop these kinds of relationships. Um, but I think it's still a work in progress, but it's something that people are thinking about. And that kind of virtual training is, is something that, uh, at least in the State Department, we've really adapted well to. I love it. It's like when you get and hit those breakout rooms, you're like, oh man, am I going to get one of those where everybody's going to mute and keep working? Or am I going to get in one where they, they expect me to engage on the topic that I just trained on? So, and you have to force, you have to force yourself to do it because that is the aspect of an in-person event is you have no choice, but to network in that virtual environment. Sometimes you can, I'm victim of this as well. You can try to just cram more work in, 
So, so far our conversation is focused on the positive, um, obviously the benefits of, you know, providing accommodation to allow remote work to happen, but certainly we have to arrest, uh, we have to address the vulnerabilities as well. There are risks associated with remote work and virtual work, and especially the rapid speed we had to kind of move into those envi environments. So kind of speak to that, Trey, what has, how has that been addressed? Um, you know, what is the intelligence community continuing to do moving forward to address those risks of the remote work environment? Yeah, so uh, where we really started out is, um, you know, we are always have to be conscious about uh, communicating uh, and employing technologies. Technology is one of the biggest risks. The insider threat, frankly, is the most significant risk, but certainly the, the foreign intelligence services do try to continuously collect and target, um, you know, uh, our people as potential assets. And so um, whether or not we're putting in place technologies that allow us to communicate and leveraging these sorts of uh, forum, um, we have to be, we almost always have to have in the mind and the expectation that we are being monitored by somebody else, especially high priority targets. So uh, there, you know, just on the technology front, uh, we tried to put in place, you know, web communications that we could use that would be more secure than just our, our standard Gmail or, uh, you know, your standard personal accounts. Um, for phones, uh, we certainly issued more phones and uh, just government so that we could know that, that monitoring uh, could be in place. Um, but it just really uh, reiterated for us that we needed to emphasize the people and the, the training and to be aware so that we're not putting out there that we're that we're not communicating, uh, trying to talk around sensitive information. Um, you know, I didn't feel like there was a that much more of a uh, awareness other than, you know, talking, saying, hey, we're going to work, do work on class. Let's just make sure we're we're conscious about it. So it was just more of a putting it on the front of everybody's mind that, um, let's make sure we keep it on class. We will have to have turnover and transition with folks. Let's do that as much when we have to talk secure in the right secure locations. And it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a major challenger that, that I felt that we didn't deal with all the time. Um, we have been having a lot of communications even before the pandemic, um, just with regards to uh, how to better effectively communicate, not just classified information, but unclassified and, and working in the open. Uh, we recognize that we're always under surveillance. And so as a result of that, uh, we just it's, it's a, an awareness that we really want to keep on the front of everybody's mind. Make sure that you're conscious about it. Um, but I didn't, I didn't feel that there was a significant amount of increased threat. Probably the biggest threat was, uh, was taken care of when we took care of the people. Uh, because if, you know, if people started losing jobs or we weren't paying them for being home or, you know, I go back to, you know, uh, if, if that financial um, burden or risk is there, you know, now you become a much more significant target uh, for a foreign intelligence service. And, and by alleviating a lot of that stress, giving people the opportunity to work from home or the weather safety leave or uh, the CARES Act implementation um, provided uh, the cleared workforce, the ability to not have that financial risk to the same level that would have made them more vulnerable. So um, in addition to all the other pieces uh, that we thought that, that was good, um, we didn't want to have that as just an increased threat and a risk to uh, the, the security of the work that we do overall. 
You know, we see, we, we see that with the security clearance denials and revocations, it's personal conduct and it's financial issues that by and large are, are big issues. So again, if you kind of start to pile on these financial issues for folks, and then it just kind of creates, you know, there's a reason that the government has seen that as a vulnerability because it shows up in, um, you know, in previous cases of, of espionage and kind of what brings people to the brink. It's a variety of factors, but we had a lot of factors in play during, <laughs> during a pandemic. So it's a wise move to care for the workforce and care for those people. So we've talked about the retention piece, Ken, I wanted to also address the recruiting piece a little bit. How has the pandemic pandemic affected your recruiting efforts at INR, um, maybe even specifically college level? I know you, you're running through a lot of PhD and higher level candidates, but has it been harder to pull in those candidates coming out of what we're doing now? Or has it been harder to be a presence in the typical kind of academic circles where you would normally? Yeah, that's an area I think that um, is kind of a success story, really. It's um, our using uh, the technology to uh, broaden uh, our message and to broaden our audience. And so, uh, as we all know, um, going online to do recruiting is more cost effective. Um, It's also more time efficient, too. Um, There's also one added benefit. uh, We've used this a couple of times where um, we are able to bring um, some notable guests to help do um, opening statements at some of our recruiting um, meetings or conferences. We could bring the president in or the secretary of state. In the past, we didn't use that um, as often, uh, but we can record messages that uh, would interest uh, potential candidates for, for jobs. Um, but we have to you know, face the reality that a, a Zoom meeting is not the same as an in-person session. So, you know, I'm reminded uh, in the State Department, there was a very famous um, former official who actually was a, a very famous broadcaster, a news broadcaster named Edward R. Murrow. And when Edward R. Murrow was in the State Department, we, he was the head of the U.S. Information Agency. And he was famous for saying that um, in international communication, the most important link in the international communication chain is the last three feet. And what he meant by that is it's that interpersonal, that person to person kind of contact where Zoom can do certain things, but it can't replicate a firm handshake and it can't replicate eye to eye contact, you know, eye contact. And so those are the things that we have to make sure um, we're developing a kind of a personal contact with people so they know that the work that we do, we're quite passionate about and we'd love for them to join us. It's not as easy doing that online. Um, I'm still proud of the fact that we have um, increased our audience when we do recruiting events online. And we brought our message across many time zones. I mean, that's what it, uh, it allows us to do. That's what the technology allows us to do as well. And we are adapting to the technology. And as I've learned, um, a number of our new colleagues in INR uh, were recruited originally online. And so I think that you know we're adapting. Uh, we've been fairly successful in doing this, um, but we still can't wait uh, for the time when we can get back on the road and, and, and meet people in person, shake their hands and look them in the eye and say, gosh, we think that INR, the IC is the best place for you. Awesome. Anybody else? You got to put some googly eyes on your webcam. That's what I've heard. That's the <laughs> trick. Because it is so awkward because you're trying to show somebody that you're engaged 
And most people not even have at home have multiple screens. So I always love like you're talking to somebody and they're like, not, they're not looking anywhere near you. Like, like, I swear I'm looking at you right now. You're just on a different screen. So it does create some of the, you know, those, those challenges. And um, yeah, it's forced a lot of, a lot of folks into different interviewing environments and, you know, that's not everybody's natural, natural place where they shine, but it's, it's, it's certainly been interesting to see. Well, you've touched on it several times, Trey. So I want to give you some more chance to expand on it. The CARES Act and CARES Act reimbursement um, for the industrial works workforce. Maybe what are some of the lessons learned from the CARES Act that maybe could shape how we um, continue to kind of, you know, care for, you know, and, and make reimbursements happen into the future if something like this were to happen again? I think the biggest lesson learned that we had really was in the implementation. It was it was uh, it was fairly easy in the engagement with Congress because they really understood what we were trying to do and what we were trying to accomplish. And we had a very consistent front between industry engagement and the government that had recognized the need to do this. And so the messaging was consistent to the Hill that that was very clear, like, let's make this happen. These are all the reasons why it's a good thing. It's being done within, at least on the intelligence community side, it's being done within existing resources. In fact, it's it's actually probably going to cost slightly less than, uh, well, it would cost, we estimate it would cost significantly less than reconstituting a workforce, both in dollars as well as in mission loss or potential mission loss. So that was a, that was a big thing there. Um, the implementation, however, uh, there was a very significant variance in terms of implementation between agency to agency, DOD and the IC that we needed to take on much more aggressively and have somewhat of a much more significantly united front and united implementation of, of how we were going to do this, what the principles were. And so, you know, in the timeline that we did it, knowing that it was coming, it just, it really just took us too long to get out guidance on implementation, who had the authority to issue that implementation and making sure that we were consistent because within the IC is, you know, 18 elements now, six different departments and two independent uh, agencies with ODI and and CIA, a lot of different rules and regulations across those very various elements that the ODI and the IC doesn't have one single set of rules that it always follows. And so, although uh, we try to work together as a single community, that community is a, is just that it's it's a bunch of different elements that see, that have their own authorities and rules that they have to follow, and getting to the right point to be able to elevate that conversation to be consistent um, was the one that probably the biggest uh, flaw that we had in the overall implementation, and probably still exists uh, to a certain extent today in terms of inconsistency of implementation, just depending upon what contract you're on or. Uh, what organization you're working with or for on uh, how they have implemented uh, the ability to leverage the CARES Act pieces. And, and that's been a complaint that we've heard both from industry and from the Hill um, as we continue to try to uh, ensure that the, the totality of our workforce is uh, able to leverage this as necessary and not be uh, poor uh, stewards of the taxpayer dollar. So we're about time to wrap up. I want to lead into my last question. Um, so if there's anything I didn't ask about so far, you got to you gotta put it all in this one. So we're talking about adapting the workforce is the big takeaway. 
So maybe as you know, I want to ask both of you, what is a big adaptation that you've seen take place in your in your workforces or within the community that you really hope will continue um, as we as we move forward and go into this, you know, this next iteration? So Ken, I'll start with you. What's something, an adaptation that you see in the workforce that you really hope will continue? Well, I think, um, as I noted earlier, we, um, we do survey um, our colleagues and I think the workforce overwhelmingly supports uh, more flexibility in telework. And I realize, uh, as we've mentioned earlier, there are some requirements, duties where people do uh, or will have to come in. Um, this, this is the intelligence community after all. But um, that management flexibility when it comes to uh, maybe allowing, now I'm not suggesting that even in the post-vaccine era, this is going to be plan A. I think the plan A is still going to be being in the office, being present there where we can be the most productive. But our workforce, especially as we transition into a post uh, sort of vaccine or post COVID era, um, we are going to be looking at allowing workers, um, employees, colleagues of ours to um, use that uh, telework flexibility, that telework option. Um, because if you can show that you are uh, quite productive, um, still working uh, remotely, um, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to take advantage of that. I think it's important for us as, as managers to understand, and I think that we kind of intuitively do understand this, that when people drop out of the workplace because they have concerns at home and they have you know, caregiver kinds of um, uh, requirements, um, when people consider dropping out of the workforce dropping out of our respective uh, Intel entities or Intel elements, that really is a hit to not just our economy, but it is a hit to our society as well. We have invested so much in the next generation of employees in the IC. We've invested too much not to consider different kinds of flexibility, different options, like giving colleagues administrative leave um, to take care of some issues uh, before coming back to work. I mean, these kinds of things are not just a requirement, are not uh, only should be a requirement for us to consider. I mean, it's the right thing to do morally as well, in my view. And so I think that that kind of, th these kinds of things that we've learned over the last year, and especially talking to our workforce, exchanging ideas with them about what, we've learned that can be adapted to a new world. These are the kinds of things that we've learned. And I think that um, down the road, uh, these lessons learned will actually benefit um, at least those of us in the State Department. So same question to you, Trey, what are some of the adaptations that you've seen that you hope will continue? Well, uh, it, it starts really with where Ken was talking about, and it's the, the flexible work schedules and the flexible environments that we can work in and whether it's telework. But what that has resulted in is an, a, a required increase in our communication and the effectiveness of handoffs between a morning shift to an afternoon shift. The, there are no individual contributors anymore. And so 
no, no success is accomplished by any one individual. And so the ability to sort of bridge that gap through multiple communication mechanisms, whether they're as simple as a post-it note on top of a piece of paper, if they're an email that summarizes what you did for the day, if it's a Zoom call or a, a telephone call as you're leaving the office, connecting with one of your, your partners that you're working with on the way home as you're passing each other on, on your various commutes, we've all recognized the need for increased and better communication and, and collaboration that uh, I hope continues to, to um, carry on. I, I think it will. I see it in our office, especially as, you know, if we were down at 50 or 75%, we're, we're probably up a little bit above that just because of where we are in the budget cycle and my office specifically. And, but um, the fact of everybody going out of their way to be, here's what it is. People aren't trying to take ownership of everything and play hide the football or, uh, and, and get the glory. They're like, we got to get this done. I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Somebody needs to have this and be able to carry it on. And how do we make sure that happens as seamlessly as possible? There's still a long ways to go to be, there, there are inefficiencies in that process, but at the same point in time, uh, people have adapted. They picked up the, the gauntlet thrown at their feet in this environment and said, I will take on that challenge and are, are really embracing the fact that uh, we do have flexibility. They do have things that they have to take care of outside. And in order to be able to balance that, they're embracing what it takes to be uh, better communicators in all of these avenues. And um, I think that's, that's a strength that we're actually getting out of this and we'll, uh, if we do ever have to reconstitute to 100% or even if we're only back to new normal, whatever that is, is different, that in improvement in communication and effectiveness, I think will uh, be a great lever for us moving forward. Now you hit on a great point. It's a, it's been a great way to kind of reduce some of those government stovepipes because you really couldn't, you know, kind of have some of the same ownership of something exclusively that maybe you could before. And they make a great point. Telework typically is not all or nothing. I think sometimes we have this idea in our head when we think remote work, it's the, it's the guy who has, you know, hasn't put on pants in a year and has never been to the office. That's not going to be the scenario within the intelligence community. So we're really talking about more flexible work environments and how we can take, you know, projects that don't need to be done and just give that workforce flexibility. And that's what we're saying. It's huge. We see, on our candidate surveys at clearance jobs, we find candidates are saying if there is not at least some remote work option, option like the flexibility there, um, they're just not willing to take it. And whether it's because of childcare or it's because of illness concerns or just whatever it is, or just, again, they just have gotten so used to not wearing pants. I don't judge. I don't know. They just need a day where they can do laundry. I don't know. But we're seeing that flexibility piece of it be really big. And we've seen the intelligence community adapt. So again, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for this program today. Thank you to the Intelligence and National Security Foundation for engaging in this conversation. We hope folks who are joining us for the program will send us their feedback. Um, that is the great thing about Insight. It's a community. So the folks who are joining these programs, we really want your feedback. and We want the engagement from the candidates and employers and the government and private sector. I love I love the kumbaya aspect of that that exists within INSA and INSEF. It really is there. And very appreciative to Avantis Federal for sponsoring this. Um, you guys have both talked about the leadership piece as leaders in the organizations, how you're creating that. That is definitely something that Avantis uh, mentioned when they kicked us off is how 
it really is a leadership opportunity. So they've seen that within their workforce and we're seeing the intelligence community implement that as well. So thank you again to the Intelligence and Security Foundation. Thank you, Ken Moy, the 300 of the intelligence community. I'm gonna say it as many times as I can. And thank you to Trey Treadwell because the, the guy with the money we always want around, right? That's all I'm good for. Thank you, Lindy, I appreciate it. Thank you, Ken, good to see you again. To see you, Trey. And for the record, I am wearing pants. Maybe. Oh, I didn't. I don't ask. I mean, I don't know. We know Trey is <laughs> in his car, so we at least I, we might, hope I so. might be in a kitchen. You never know. <laughs>